New Year, of course, is a time, isn't it, for new habits, new rhythms, new disciplines to come into place for many of us. And for Christians, one of the um, a popular resolution, if you like, is often reading the Bible in a year, um, which is incidentally something I would highly recommend. I myself have been working on the same Bible reading plan for the last eight years. Not, it hasn't taken me eight years to get to, but it has transformed each year doing that reading has transformed my knowledge of the Bible and my love of God through reading Scripture. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. As we embark on something like this of getting to grips with Scripture for ourselves, there is a classic point, though, where so many of us fall off and just want to give up in our reading of the Bible. When you come to God's law in the Old Testament... You can start off so well, and you come in with tons of enthusiasm, ready to go, and you find yourself having a great time. There's floods, there's arcs, there's wars, there's family drama, there's love story, there's romance. You're like, this Bible's great. And then you turn the page and bang, hit with laws and instructions and commands, and like pages and pages and pages. You're like, when is this ever going to end? And that is the section that we have reached in our Exodus series. (laughs) The section that is dense with, we have to be real about it, it's dense with laws that for us, it feels so, they can seem so obscure in a culture that seems like this could not be more different to ours. And you hear God's voice and, and read what he's saying, and he's saying, you shall not boil a goat in its young, a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, but, I mean, maybe for someone here that is directly relevant. And you're like, finally, an answer. <laughs> but for most of us, I'm like, what? do we do with that? What does it mean? Why is that so important? And that is what I want to look at today, the laws and the commandments of God that often for us as Christians today, 21st century, living in Manchester, are so confusing and and actually out of their context can then make God seem very controlling and overbearing over his people. And today I want to take a wide angle lens view of, of God's law. That in this series, as we, there is so much, as we've just said, we're not going to have time to be able to delve into each and every one of the laws, certainly not going to be able to say everything that there is to say about God's laws. But what I'm hoping to do today is give us something of a framework for understanding where does God's law fit into the overall story of God's people, to help us to see what is God actually trying to accomplish through his people's obedience to his commands. And so then, what does that tell us about why our obedience today is so crucial. So hopefully I'm gonna, we're going to help, help give us a bit of a, an understanding of the bigger picture of the whole of the Bible, which is always helpful. I think it fuels our worship when we see this whole thing actually clicks together and fits together quite nicely. And it kind of helps us to see God really does know what he's doing and he's, he's in control of everything. But also I'm hoping to give us fresh enthusiasm for our own submission and obedience to God. I mean, there are two words that we don't often celebrate over and love, like obedience and submission to God. But I want to help see us why that is good, help us see why that is good news for us. And so to give us a bit of an idea of where we're going, here's kind of a little summary of today's message. God doesn't give us rules for our rescue. He gives us rules for our relationship. That's what we're going to unpack today. He gives us rules not for our rescue, but for our relationship. And to do this, we're going to start in our text of Exodus chapter 24. 
Um, and so last time we're out, we were actually in Exodus chapter 20. So we've skipped forward a little bit. In Exodus 20, we saw the beginning of God's commandments, the famous Ten Commandments. And the three chapters that then follow are then a list of a lot of rules and instructions that are much more specific outworkings of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the goat's milk one that I just read being an example. And after God then gives these big lists of rules... In those three chapters, he moves on. In, uh, so we're still at Mount Sinai. He, and he, uh, Moses has been given all these rules, and we start off in Exodus chapter 24. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me, but the words will appear on the screen so you can read along if you haven't. So Exodus 24. Then he, this is God, God said to Moses, come up to the Lord. So come up Mount Sinai to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So that's everything that he's just said over the last four chapters. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who burned offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, as I said, today we are taking a bit of a wide-angle view of this, and so we'll get into Exodus chapter 24 in a little bit, but what will help us understand this ceremony that we're seeing in this chapter is actually to take a moment to go back to Exodus chapter 19, which is a verse that we have been referring to, a set of verses we've been referring to a lot over this series, because they're perhaps the most helpful verses for understanding the whole flow of what's going on in Exodus, as God speaks to his people after setting them free from Egypt, bringing them to safety at Mount Sinai, he he says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the reason I take us back to these verses is that to consider the laws and the commandments of God without the context that comes before it is to make the mistake that I made when I went to see the movie Avengers of Infinity War without having seen any of the previous Marvel films. It's one of those movies where all of the like, threads of story all come together, and I loved the shiny effects, but I had no idea what was going on. I completely misunderstood the plot. I thought the bad guys were good guys. I just didn't get it. Why? because I missed out on vital... I mean, I've lost half of the audience now. Big Marvel fans are like, what are you doing? I've missed out on vital context and backstory. 
And we have to see this. Before God starts to give any rules to his people, he says, you have seen what I have done. You know I have carried you, brought you here. He wants them steeped in the knowledge of what he has done. As you've seen the hand, my hand of power at work. But he doesn't just say they have seen it. He says, but I, I bore you on eagle's wings. I carried you. He is speaking to them of their experience of him. They didn't just observe God at work. They haven't just seen a kind of nicely put together Attenborough documentary of the hand of God in nature. They've experienced it. You've you've been carried. You know when you've been carried by something, don't you? You've felt the strength of my arms underneath you. When you could not lift yourself up, I lifted you. I picked you up out of the jaws of death. I broke the chains of your slavery. I defeated your all-powerful enemy. We have been through, as we've looked at this, 19 chapters of divine saving activity, God's work on behalf of these people. Before any rules are spoken, the rescue. This is how God works with his people. I love how Paul talks about this. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, he speaks to them and says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, there's a cheery message for the new year, isn't it? You were dead. But he's underlining, you are, you are completely incapable of saving yourself. He doesn't just say to them, oh, you're a little bit impaired, you know, a bit confused, you've gone off track a little bit. What you really needed was God just to sort of nudge you in the right direction, you know, a few little helpful principles to put into work and you'd be all right. No, you were dead. You couldn't do a thing. And then going on, verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead, when we were helpless, who was the one who moved? Who was the one that acted? But God made us alive. Throughout the whole of the Exodus narrative, we have seen they have functionally or narratively speaking been dead so many times. Right at the beginning when the Egyptians ordered that the midwives should kill the baby boys as soon as they're born. When baby, the baby Moses was abandoned on the Nile. When the whole nation was surrounded by the waters of death all around them as they were crossing through the Red Sea. As they found themselves in the wilderness, dying of thirst, grumbling and starving. Functionally, these people were dead. And each time, how were they made alive? Not through their own ingenuity or managing to obey a few rules, but by the movement of God and God alone on their behalf. And what God is saying to his people here is, you have to know this is your starting place. You have to know, I have been rescued. You have to know, God has moved. I am only, I was dead. I was dead. And only because God and God alone moved in my life and made me alive that I am here. He's saying, revel in it, rejoice in it, celebrate it before anything else. We even think or even hear about the rules. Know that you have been made alive. Why do you think every Sunday we come together? You might be 
the kind of agenda running order here at Rev is very, very samey each week. Every week we start with worship. Why do we do it? We come together to proclaim the praises of God who has saved us already, to remind ourselves, to remind one another, he's rescued us, he's rescued us. You're saved because he made us alive. That's what we do before anything else. And then it's to these people, people who already know God through the personal saving work that he has written in their life, that have experienced him for themselves that God asks obedience of. This is one thing we must understand about the law of God. It's only when God, these, these people, they've met God for themselves. They know him because they've experienced the wonder of his saving power at work in their lives. Only to those does God then go on in verse 5 in chapter 19 and says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Notice those two words here. Now, therefore. You know, if the story ended here, these Israelites would have enough to worship God for the rest of their lives. They have been set free from slavery. They've been rescued from certain death for the rest of their lives. And yet God continues with a now, therefore. As Goke was brilliantly showing us last week, when God's, God's work does not stop when he saves us. The gift that God has for us does not come to an end at the point of our salvation. After the rescue, there is so much more. There is a now, therefore, for us to step into. He saves us for something. And that something we see in this verse, but we also see in Exodus 24 as we go through it. He saves us to keep a covenant. Now that is a word that is so important for us to understand What is God saying through his law? It's a word that doesn't really pop up in conversation all too regularly for us. Uh, A covenant really is like a binding promise or an agreement between two parties. And so it's a little bit like a contract where you agree terms and uh, you're bound by them and the contract hopefully will be benefiting each party. But a covenant has more of a sense of the people involved being bound together through this agreement. So when Hannah and I go out for dinner occasionally, uh, we'll be looking at the menu at the beginning, and Hannah will say to me, oh, what are you thinking, Duncan? What are you going to order? And uh, the problem with me is I can never decide what I want when I go to a restaurant. Do not go for dinner with me. It will be a long night. And so I start off with about 15 different options, and if we're lucky, I will have narrowed it down to a couple. And I say to her, look, I, I really want the calamari, but I also really want the chicken wings. And sometimes Hannah will say to me, Oh, great, I was trying to decide between those two, too. And so, it's time for a mini covenant. (laughs) I say to her, Hannah, if I order the calamari and you order the chicken wings, I can have half your chicken wings, you can have half my squid. How does that sound? And normally her response is something along the lines of, Yes, Duncan, you are so wise. I can't like... (laughs) I really lucked out when I married you. <laughs> I'm sort of paraphrasing a little bit. <laughs> so we lay down the terms, we set out the agreement, and then you seal it. A covenant is sealed by some act, normally a little high five as we celebrate and look forward to all that is to come. A covenant, it's a relational agreement, it binds the parties together, and here's the important thing it's for the mutual good of both parties chicken wings and calamari. 
Life does not get better than that. And this is a somewhat trivial example of what God is trying to form with his people. Again, crucial for us to understand the context of God's law. As, the, as a reader, as we go through 20 through to 23, chapters 23, through to 20 through to 23, he's following this stunning rescue of God. It's been dramatic, exciting. Look at God on the move. And it's jarring. You feel like I'm wading through God commanding very, very specific stipulations of oxen and caring for your vineyard. And there's an awful lot in there of God saying, you shall not. And it can sound so one-sided. Without any context at all, it can easily form this impression for us of what God really wants, what he's really after, is to serve his own interest. He's looking to manipulate us. He's looking to control us. All he's really in this for is himself. But in each of those laws, we have to keep in mind this. Read it through the lens of covenant. That God is seeking to bind himself together with his people. That he is working for his own benefit, yes, but for the benefit of his people. And I think that's exactly what we see as we uh, as we go into Exodus chapter 24. Because it certainly seems to be how the people respond. They hear the law and they think, this is for our good. In verse 3 of 24, we, we read how Moses reads out all of this law to them, all of this terms of the covenant that he wants to bind them to. And they respond emphatically. Listen to this. After Moses has read it, they said, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's not even like, oh, we'll try our best. No, we will do it. Now, if you followed this series along, you will know these people. You will know their absolutely unrivaled, unmatched, world-class ability to doubt God, to grumble about God, to find some way to moan about God, just at the drop of a hat. And yet here... No hesitation, no divisions amongst them, one voice. They hear the word of God and together they're like, yes. You get a sense of kind of enthusiasm and joy of like, yes, we want in on this. We want to enter into a covenant with God. And that's exactly what they do. Verses 4 through to 8, we see this. It's like a ceremonial sealing of this covenant between man and God. It starts off in, it's a little bit like Hannah and I's high five, but just there's, there's a lot more going on. It's much more interesting. In verse 4, Hannah, uh, not Hannah, Moses. (laughs) Hannah builds an altar. (laughs) Doesn't often happen when we go out. Moses builds an altar. And as Gokke was talking about last week, the the altar represents the meeting place of man and God together. So it's like God is present in this ceremonial moment. And then Moses builds 12 pillars, which in, in the passage talks about how it represents the 12 all the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, emphasizing all of the people of God are in on this. They want, want to be part of it. And then you go into verses 5 and 6, and animals are sacrificed, and Moses takes the blood of the animals, and half of it he throws on the altar. And so symbolically, half of the blood, is being, it, God is covered with half of the blood. And then Moses reads out all of the law and the commandments again. Now in the context of the ceremony itself, he outlines the terms of the covenant that they're entering into. And the people once again say, all that God has said, we spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And again, you get this sense of a joyful expectation, not like a, a reluctant signing up to something they don't really want to do. 
And Moses then finishes by taking the second half of all the blood he collected, throwing it on the people, and declaring the covenant sealed. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant sealed by both God and man being covered by half the blood each, joined in it together. Now, it is worth pointing out, this is a weird ceremony. I mean, I I hope that kind of blood-throwing ceremonies are not a regular part of your weekly rhythms. Maybe it is, I don't know. But we look at, read this, and we think, there is nothing here that I can relate this to, surely. And yet, actually, as we go through this, I think there are signs that this ceremony is far more familiar to each one of us in this room than it first appears. Signs that also tell us about the nature of this covenant that God is forming with his people. See if this sounds familiar. It opens in verses 1 and 2. And what is really clear in those first couple of verses is that the two parties being joined, God and man, are separated from one another. So God is at the top of Mount Sinai. The people are are not near. They're at the foot of the mountain. And so you have a covenantal ceremony where the two parties being joined are not in the same place to begin with. And then what's more, the beauty of one of these parties being joined is covered. We've seen this throughout the, uh, the narrative so far in previous weeks. The glory of God is hidden by a cloud in Mount Sinai. And so if you like, the beauty of God is being veiled. Might be starting to sound familiar. And then there is someone here, Moses, who is conducting a ceremony to join these two parties together. And the one that is performing the ceremony is reading from a book. And then in the presence of a great assembly, covenant promises are declared with the form, we will, or if you like, sounds a bit like, I will, or I do. And then we finish with the one that is performing the ceremony, Moses, proclaiming that the covenant has been sealed. Or, I now pronounce you covenanted. (laughs) So, as weird as this might seem to us on first reading, this ceremony is actually designed to spark in our mind one of the most, in fact, probably the the most well-known covenantal ceremony throughout all of history. In fact, probably the only covenantal ceremony that any of us are really familiar with the marriage ceremony. That if you look carefully, you see these, are, these two parties, God and man, they're not just being joined together in covenant, but in covenantal relationship. These are two, the youth are very excited about that. <laughs> these are two parties coming together, not just for mutual benefit, but with the desire to give themselves to one another completely and fully. This is God and man coming together to be joined in the closest of relationships. Now, in case you think, Duncan, you are massively overreaching in your interpretation of the ceremony, which I'm like, that's fair. I think it becomes more convincing in the verses that then follow. As we all know, after the marriage ceremony, one of the expected changes is that, without going into all of the details, a couple will begin to enjoy new intimacy together. That through the sealing of a covenant, they are joined together in a whole new way. And that is exactly what we see as we go on from here. Verse 9. Then Moses, so this is just after the covenant ceremony, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So now, not just Moses going up the mountain as we've seen before, but now a whole group of them. And what's very important is we see 70 elders going up. Now, for pure health and safety reasons, there is no way they're going to try and get all two million Israelites up to the summit of the mountain. That is not going to go down well. And so what they do instead is they send 70 elders. In Jewish thought, the number 7 and the number 10 representing totality and completeness. And so you kind of multiply them together, and it's the the sense of a total totality of all of the people represented. It's symbolic of all of the people are now here. And they go up in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw God. The beauty of the one who was previously shrouded in a cloud, hidden from them, through entering into covenant with them, with him, the veil is lifted, and they behold his glory. They see his majesty revealed. I love what then follows in verse 10, where it says, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now, the way the structure, the sentence flows, you think, they saw God, and you're now expecting, give us a description of God. But instead, we get a description of the pavement. It's like the author Moses went to write about the beauty of God and just, I, I just can't. Like his, he was like, he, his appearance was, it was so, and he just can't find the word. This happens throughout all of the Bible. When authors come into contact with the beauty and the magnificence of God, it's so great. And then trying to put any language to it is just so inadequate. They're just like, well, we'll just tell you about what is around God. I'll tell you about the light that is surrounding his throne. We'll tell you about the creatures that are near him. Here, Moses is like, I'll tell you about the pavement. It was very heaven. That even seeing the pavement under the feet of God was like tasting a different world. And they get to enjoy it, not just for the blink of an eye, but to sit and to stay. Verse 11, the end. They beheld God and ate and drank, entered into the presence of God to share a meal with him. I guess the finishing touches to our wedding parallels here, like after any good wedding comes an opportunity to feast together, the marriage supper, where you can celebrate all that has happened. And in this culture, the idea of a meal being welcomed in, the sign of welcome, the sign of acceptance and unity and togetherness and closeness, to invite someone in for a meal is to say, this is home for you. This is what God is saying to his people. You are now home. This has been his plan throughout the whole of the book of Exodus. This is a a high point, quite literally, in all that God has been trying to do to draw them into his presence. This is what he's been working towards all along. This is why he rescued them, so that he can welcome them right in to be with him, to enjoy the closest of relationships with him, to be home. And here's what's so important for us to see. This relationship is only possible through the covenant. 
The people can only come into his presence. They can only have this experience, this encounter, be joined in fellowship, come home to God through keeping his covenant, through keeping the rules that he gives them. This is the whole purpose of the law. Without doubt, there are rules. There are things they have to do, but he's not giving them rules for their rescue. He's giving these rules to establish and grow and deepen their relationship with him. Even that idea might sound a bit strange to us, like rules for relationship. But in the reality, we all know that, even if we wouldn't maybe use that word rule, sounds a bit formal, all of us know that there are laws or codes for us to follow in our relationships. That if we want to invest in a relationship, if we want to deepen it, there are a lot of assumed codes and ways of being and things that you would do that almost always they go completely unspoken, but they're there. I mean, if you've got a close friend and you want to go deeper in relationship with that friend, you don't go talking about them behind their back. You don't go gossiping about them. You, don't, you make sure you respond to their messages most of the time. You remember dates that are important to them. You make time in your schedule to go out for brunch with them or whatever, or go climbing with them or whatever might be good for you. If I want a close relationship with my two boys, it will not do for me to just be like, oh, I've just got to work today. I'll just stay up in my office the whole time. I've got to make time to play with them. I've got to go down, invent stupid games with them, allow myself to be used as a human climbing frame at great risk to my own physical safety, because that's how relationship happens. No one has ever written this down as a rule, like if you want a close relationship with your kids, you shall not ignore them and do your own thing. I haven't seen that written down anywhere, but it's a type of law. From experience, we know any close relationship makes big demands of us. It asks us to make particular commitments, life changes, sacrifices. And here God is just being hyper clear. This is how this relationship works. He goes into print for his people. He says, this is how to enjoy the deep fellowship with me that you want. He wasn't going to leave them just grasping around in the dark, trying to figure it out on their own. Like, how do we please God? What doesn't please God? Each commandment he gives, each rule, here in Exodus, here in Deuteronomy, here in Leviticus, where you just want to give up on that Bible reading plan, it's an invitation into greater intimacy with God. This is why obedience to God for us today cannot be ignored, has to be a priority. It's the only way for us to know him deeply in the way that we want to. As we've seen so often in the book of Exodus, what we see here is the beginning of a pattern. The, the pattern of intimacy through obedience is one that echoes throughout all of Scripture. God laying down, this is how he relates to his people. Here are the words of Jesus in John 14. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See how Jesus here says exactly the same thing as we've just been looking at. He links obedience into intimacy with God. If you keep my commandments... Then, continuing the thought, he says, the Father's going to send the Spirit, you will know him, he will dwell with you, and he will be in you. I mean, if that is not the language of intimacy with God, I don't know what is. He's going to be with you and in you. 
The Greek word there, know, is not kind of an intellectual knowledge, but knowing someone through close personal experience. And then in exactly the same conversation, Jesus then goes on and says, if you keep my commandments, in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keep my commandments and you'll abide. You will come home. I imagine at the beginning of this new year for each of us, they're high on the list of our resolutions and goals and what we want from this year. I imagine for lots of us, it'd be like, I'd love to know a closeness with God, to actually know him deeply for myself, to have a living relationship with God in a way that I've not known before. You might have all kinds of plans of how this might come about. You might have already booked yourself onto that Christian camp where there's going to be long times in worship for you to encounter his presence. You might have been thinking about any ministry time that we have here, like try and stop me, I'm going to get forward, get people praying for me. You might have even started developing some of your own prayer disciplines of meditative prayer and welcoming his presence in your room. These are all great things. Do them. Also, this, obedience to Jesus. If we are serious about knowing God's presence in our life and having a real relationship with him, we need to hear his words. We need to hear the commandments of Jesus. I mean, there's an idea that we don't like. We like chill Jesus. We don't like Jesus commanding us to do things so we can know him more. This means choosing to love our enemies. Not just tolerating them, not just ignoring them, but actively loving the people that we find most difficult. This means making steps to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. It means detaching your heart from anything else you are tempted to love, you try and love. Love of status, love of money, love of approval of others to be devoted to him. It means, just as we were talking about with our month of prayer, taking, making disciplined decisions to make time for prayer and fasting in our own life. Being generous and free with our money towards other people. These are hard things. And Jesus doesn't set them out as pass or fail. You're either in or you're out. But he's saying, as you grow in living out these things that are challenging to us, the more you will move towards what you really want, a deep relationship with him. I think it really helps us see how sin and why sin is so harmful to us and our disobedience. I'm not sure about you, but I find it really easy in my own life to have too relaxed an attitude towards areas in my life that do not obey Jesus' commandments. Because when we're disobedient, often bad things don't happen immediately. When we make a habit of covering our mistakes at work and allow other people to get the blame or we're a bit creative with the truth when we're writing our CV because surely everyone else is doing it or we allow uh, ourselves to just slowly adopt an inward posture of judgmentalism towards other people. Have you ever noticed how when you do those things you can feel like you're getting away with it a little bit and nothing bad immediately seems to happen a lot of the time. Your arm doesn't fall off. Your exam results don't just start to immediately plummet. In fact, it can feel like life is going quite well. But one thing we can be sure of from this is that our disobedience, it holds us back. It keeps us and stops us from enjoying anywhere near the depth of relationship with God that we long for, that we could enjoy. It stops us finding our home. This is what he has rescued us for, to enjoy covenant with him. And yet we see, actually, as we go on from here, that this covenant that God has made with his people would only offer them a limited access to him. 
a limited relationship to be enjoyed on particular days, in particular places, for particular people. A covenant that showed something of what was possible and gave a glimpse, but a covenant really that was pointing towards something greater. These are the words of Jesus on the night before he died in Luke chapter 22. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant sealed not with the blood of sacrificed animals, but by the blood of Jesus, sacrificing his life on the cross to show us once again just how much he wants this relationship, just how much he is for us, his continual, unwavering commitment and faithfulness to his people. He shed his own blood to seal a new covenant with his people giving us a new covenant with a whole new way, whole new level of access to him. As we see in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us, through the blood of this new covenant, we have access into the holy place, the place where the presence of God is, our summit of the mountain, it's now completely opened up for us to enter into. Not just for the few, not just occasionally. Now each of us can come. Whoever we are, whatever, whatever the time might be, wherever we find ourselves, to ascend the mountain confidently into the presence of God. So as Hebrews continues, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us draw near. This is what he has rescued us for. This is what he's won for us. Access into the holy place, the dwelling place of God. Access through hearing his voice, keeping his covenant, and living out his rules for enduring relationship with him.